Hi, good morning and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. And this is our weekly sub-series called Sustainable Short Takes with me, JJ Walsh, here in Hiroshima, Japan. And I'm not sure who you're pointing at yet. But I'm, <laughs> I'm Tova Kinoka. Um, usually I'm in Yokohama, just outside Tokyo. Today I'm coming to you live from central Tokyo, from Gaienmai. And yeah, hi, this is <laughs> this is Shirley. And I've been working with Towa and JJ for our next event. And it's going to be great, hopefully in May. And we also have a preview in March. So please look out for that. Thank you. <laughs> so Shirley just hinted at something I wrote in the notes here. Uh, we are postponing, not canceling our big event from March 21st. Uh, we're going to do an online event with some of the great speakers on that day, March 21st from 9 to 11, probably. And then in May, we're thinking the 14th or 15th, we're going to have the all-day event on the Saturday or Sunday. So more information coming soon. Thank you so much, guys, for your patience. It is just not going to work to go ahead for March. Tova has been working really hard to find a venue, and it just wasn't coming together. Uh, no, this no. actually, I think it's going to work out better. It's going to give us more time uh, to get the word out and to get people there. And hopefully we'll all be boosted by then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Much better timing, I think. So uh, looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, let's start with kind of a controversial but should not be controversial topic. Uh, Tova, you pointed out a Sibylla Patrizia and her documentary film, A Bloody Taboo. Now, Sylvia and her uh, colleague also made Plastic Love, the documentary, which is going to come out sometime this year. And I had the chance to talk to Sibylla in the beginning of this talk a little bit about this amazing documentary. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah. So um, I've came across this on a, a friend's uh, Facebook post last week. Um, I think Robin Lewis from Social Innovation Japan posted that. Um, and it was a really interesting uh, sort of short film looking at, particularly in Japan, um, why do people, why is it such a taboo to talk about periods, menstruation? You know, this is something that 50% of the population globally goes through. It's not something we choose to do. It's something that's natural and happens. So why is there this taboo about it? And the, the, the film speaks to um, people in Japan of all generations. So it's talking to sort of younger people who are just starting on their menstruation journey. It talks to older generations, that's their grandparents talking about how, uh, you know, it was before the age of having easily available menstruation products. So they had to use cloths and then they those had to be washed in the communal washing areas. And so it was all very, you know, they, they had to wait until nobody was around to go and wash them and, and try and hide it all the time. They were told it was something that, you know, they shouldn't let the men see, keep it secret, it's dirty. Um, and the, the younger, um, people they interviewed were talking about the fact that in sex education classes at schools still in Japan the girls and the boys are separated so boys never even hear about periods really and what's going on 
And so they have no understanding, which perpetuates the stigma and you know the, the feeling that this is something that we shouldn't be talking about, um, which, which is crazy. Um, so it, it was a very interesting film. It was great to hear different generational perspectives. Another topic they brought up was the, the tampon tax, um, as we call it in the UK. And uh, sort of, again, in Japan, you know, the, the menstruation products are taxed. Why, why are women having to pay extra out of our own pockets for this? You know, medicine is subsidized or, you know, or any other kind of health related project uh, products are. This is not something that, you know, we can avoid. We have to use these things. So why are they, why are we being charged so much for that? That was a really interesting topic to bring up and something I would really like schools and local governments and national government to be, be talking more about and looking at how we can make this more normal to talk about it, uh, remove that stigma and also re reduce the, um, the financial burden on women for this. Absolutely, absolutely. Shirley, you had an interesting example from India, a film that became popular? Yep, so um, there was this film that came out uh, which was called Padman. So this was more about rural India where, you know, women even now use rags or leaves or a piece of cloth, you know, like Toa said, uh, because sanitary napkins are so rare and it's almost too expensive to buy. So there was this story about a man who got married to a woman because in like traditional marriages, men are sometimes men are not even aware of this thing or that exists, you know, in like you female bodily function. So once he got married to her and then once she came inside the family, he realized that every month, like two or three days, she was banished from the family and she couldn't do household chores. She couldn't participate. And he loved her so much that he couldn't see that happening. And he was so shocked. So and just seeing that she had to use leaves or rags to like for basic function, which should be provided easily. So he tried to use like a different different kinds of materials because just buying a normal pad from the store was way too expensive. In the beginning, he started buying those for his wife, but then they had to cut costs on milk or, you know, basic products just so that he could provide that to her and she and she did not like that. So he then went on a mission to try to make affordable sanitary pads and because like no woman was ready to experiment for him because of the taboo and such like crazy you know things happening around the village and not accepting this as a normal thing he just tried different pads and he kind of used like goat's milk to emulate what it feels like and even though the whole village was against him he went on to make this very innovative product which he then went on to like present all over India. So that's something that is super duper like <laughs> inspiring, I would say, especially coming yeah. from a man. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I think we have to include men in the conversation, right? And yep. uh, like when my my daughter started menstruating, I bought her these reusable pads uh, made in Japan. They're cute. Um, she got used to rinsing them out, and we put them in the laundry. You know, same like any other dirty clothes. Um, my son 
my husband see this happening. Uh, my son, when he got his first girlfriend, said, how can I support my girlfriend while she's menstruating? Oh. You know, and I, I thought, yeah, we should have this conversation with everybody because it's such a normal part of society. Yeah. Right? Um, there's definitely, like we were saying before we started, there's uh, effects on people, planet, and profit. Uh, if girls have to stay home from school because they're menstruating, that affects our economy and education. Um, people stay home from work because they're menstruating. You know, like it really has that people, planet, profit um, aspects to it. Uh, how we find more sustainable types of tampons or pads that we could mm -hmm. reuse, right? The cup. Um, there's a lot of innovation there and it should be funded or at least subsidized by the government. This is not something people are choosing to right. have, right? Mm, absolutely. Completely agree with you. <laughs> uh, let's switch gears to AI. Let's talk about artificial intelligence. I was thinking about, can we have a sustainable AI future? Uh, I, I drive a electric car, uh, Tesla, and one of the games on the Tesla is backgammon. And I was playing the easiest level and it's too easy. It's like making obvious mistakes. But then if you choose the medium level or the hard level, it's impossible to win. And a lot of the roles that I was I was doing, but the computer was doing, they wouldn't even show it to me. They would just be like, just assume that you got a role that you couldn't move. So it's just playing by itself. And it really got me thinking, not just about this game, but it got me thinking about our future depending on computers that learn and AI. And if we are so dependent on resource management, um, energy, uh, infrastructure, you know, like all these things that we use computers for now, if we're dependent on AI, it depends how they're programmed in terms of how fair it's going to be for us. So can we have a sustainable future with AI? So it's just kind of thinking about this a bit. Any thoughts, Tova, Shirley? Shelley, do you want to go first on this one? You probably know oh, more sure. than me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a topic which is very close to my heart. I've, I studied artificial intelligence and machine learning in university um, for five years ago. And yeah, it was, it was very interesting. It was one of the most interesting subjects that we touched upon. And I would really like to talk about, like in in a really short period of time, about the project that we did uh, for AI and sustainability. So it was um, so we worked for kind of like the smart city project for the government of India, and it was like a hackathon. And we came up like five of us uh, as a group. We came up with an idea for using AI and Internet of Things for sustainable garbage management, because garbage management is kind of like a big issue in India because the population is so huge. It's like 1.3 billion, mm. I think right now. I might be wrong, but so, yeah, what we came up with is that there were so many like garbage bins all around the city, but we do not have enough resources for this truck to go to every garbage bin every single day and collect it. So there was like 
overflowing every day, which causes a health hazard, biohazard. So what we did is just using a very cost-effective ultrasonic sensor on these garbage bins, which tracks the amount of garbage, because sometimes if there are like 10 apartment buildings in the same area, there's like more garbage, right? But if it's like a more rural area with just like five houses in a one kilometer vicinity, it doesn't need to be you know, taken out every day. So using those ultrasonic sensors on those garbage bins, we just had like a graph that showed the amount of garbage in that particular bin. So it automatically gave you like the area that you should target. And like these bins require your attention right now. It's 90% and above. So go there and finish that. And if you have time, then you go to this route. So it also made like a route for you. In, and we also included like citizen participation, like if the citizen, if any kind of, uh, if any person sees like, okay, there is some garbage on the road, which is unsanitary, or if they see like potholes or stuff like that, they can just report it. And we use geolocation from the photo to realize where that picture is taken from. And we can, you know, address that issue ASAP. So that was something that was highly appreciated and we enjoyed a lot. So, you know, things like that, if we can do in, um, you know, in Japan as well, that would be amazing, I think. Yes, brilliant, isn't it? Definitely. That reminds me of a, I, I listened to a podcast, um, uh, the Ocean Impact Organization, and one of the organizations that they were talking about um, is doing a sea bin project. So it's an Australian uh, company and they created this uh, kind of, it looks like a trash can in the water and it just uh, kind of with the flow of the water naturally collects mm -hmm. garbage um, and lets fish go through so it doesn't catch fish by accident. Um, it's a very simple uh, project, but it's very effective. You have to have staff that keep emptying it because it fills up fast. Um, but one of the technologies they were using recently is to have kind of a code reader and to track because all of these products, especially if it's a, a product uh, like a pet bottle, mm -hmm. it has a barcode. So it started automatically tracking what companies' products were coming into the seabed and then collecting all of that data into a database which was accessible to the public and can be accessed around the world. So in this way, that's definitely an idea for a more sustainable future, holding businesses accountable, having that transparency and accountability as a way that we're programming our computers to help us deal with environmental problems. So that was really exciting to see. Yeah, no, that, that's brilliant. And I, I think, you know, both examples that we've talked about, both, you know, Shirley's example in the cities um, and, you know, that ocean one as well, show us that there is huge potential for this. Um, I think the, uh, the, the flip side of that is um, if we're talking about, back to your original uh, example, Joy, of in your car playing against, you know, the, the AI in a game where you can't win and it's learning and getting more cleverer and cleverer as it goes on um you know what are the the risks associated with that and who's programming this and and are there biases being pro uh, programmed into 
that system and the way it's thinking and learning. So I think you know, we, we've seen a lot of discussion, I think, in media around that um, and how um, you know you, you can't very easily exclude all biases out of that, but having to at least be aware of it at the programming stage, have it externally audited and checked um, to make sure that you know we're, we're not creating machines that are continuing our biases um, and making it even worse. Yeah, for sure. Um, and this kind of leads into one of your topics for today, Tova, about governance and going beyond the discussions of COP26 from discussion to action. Because um, I think governments have to understand technology. We have to have training of people in policymaking to understand how it works and how it could be manipulated um, to cheat and yeah. not be honest and to, to keep that kind of oversight mm -hmm. uh, point of view of technology. I'm not sure if they talked about that in this uh, after COP26 conference. Um, do you want to introduce that? Yeah, certainly. So this is um, a, a panel discussion that I moderated yesterday um, for the BCCJ. Um, and we were looking at, we had, had three panelists and uh, we had Alistair Dormer, who is the um, executive director, I think, at, and also chief sustainability officer for Hitachi. Um, we had Jennifer Rogers, who's general counsel for Asurian, but also sits, um, she's one of very few non-Japanese uh, non women um, who sits as an external board director for three Japanese uh, companies. Um, and also we had Aragon St. Charles, who's head of uh, ESG for Denton's law firm. So really, e each of them brought a very, very different perspective um, to the discussion. Uh, we started off uh, looking at COP26 itself. So Alistair was there at COP. Um, Hitachi was the only major Japanese company to be one of the principal partners. Um, at COP, uh, which was disappointing that there weren't more Japanese companies represented there. Um, but it, he was talking first about uh, the fact that just the, the fact that people were able to finally get together. It was the first major international gathering in two years, basically. Um, and he said the atmosphere was incredible and all of the um, you had so many different sectors represented. So in previous COPs, it's always been very much a governmental thing with some sort of activist or MPO participation on the fringes. And um, the scientists were kind of, again, at the fringes. He said, this felt very different. It was really buzzing. Everyone was excited to be there. You had, um, you know, indigenous peoples represented. You had um, uh, sort of all different kinds of industry. And everyone was looking to say, what can we do together? How can we work together on this? So there was a real sense that this is urgent, we need to collaborate to get on with this. So just like the examples we've been talking about, you know, Shirley, with your um, you know, team of young scientists, bright young minds working with local government and working with local communities to, to solve the garbage problem. He said there was very much that sense of, um, okay, we know what the problems are, we know what we need to do, how do we work together to do this? Um, which was really positive to hear, because I think there was also a lot of negative uh sort of media coming out of cop and oh, they're not doing enough and the you know the targets weren't ambitious enough and 
absolutely all that's true too but the fact they were able to gather in person seems to have really galvanized a lot of the uh the corporates particularly i think to to step up and say right this is we we need to do this now we can't just sit and let wait for the governments to to make their policies um so then when we started digging into the the questions coming out sort of looking at regulatory environment how is that changing um in light of the the cop um sort of glasgow climate pact and so on um jennifer was talking about the fact that on boards certainly in the boards that she sits in there are not of um not a lot of sustainability experts per se but everyone is having to suddenly really educate themselves on what does this mean we can't just sort of say this will will delegate that to the sustainability team and they can produce the report and then we don't we we just focus on the profits and the the business strategy there's a real sense of now no this is part of the central business strategy and we all need to understand what this means we need to understand as a company how do we build this into our business as usual so that and was be, encouraging. be open be yes. open to collaborating with yeah. experts and open yourself up yeah to kind of transparency a little bit more and get outside consultants in who really understand it and use that chance to promote what you think your company is doing well to them yes. and then they can also help uh, promote what you're doing once they understand how to communicate that yeah. um i had a really disappointing reaction from a bunch of companies i was all gung-ho beginning of this year reached out uh, by translated letters offered them to join a free sdg seminar offered 30 minutes of free consulting and every single one of them said no we got it under control we don't wow. need any help and i thought what a shame that they didn't use that opportunity to sell me on what they're doing yeah. and then i will become a free brand ambassador for them like to keep it secret and not even want to have a free discussion hmm. uh, to learn something new but also to promote what you're doing i think it's really short-sighted um Very and much. so that's a frustration being in hiroshima <laughs> i see so much more movement in tokyo and the big cities hmm. come on hiroshima we can do it too you know everybody <laughs> everybody in government in businesses uh from the grassroots levels we all need to be talking about this we yeah. all need to be collaborating and discussing these issues right yeah absolutely absolutely so it was yeah very interesting i mean the recording of the event will hopefully be out next week um so if anyone's interested you you'll be able to to listen to that then um but the, yeah the, the overall sense was this is now that the understanding is there that this needs to be up front and center and taken into um you know sort of daily business conversations it's no longer something that's at the side and a csr issue um aragon st charles his his background is in operations interestingly he's been a, a sustainability nerd um for a very very long time he's a qualified permaculture and aquaponics uh teacher and published expert on that um, but that was always peripheral to, well, you know, it's completely separate from his role in his previous company as head of operations for, for Hogan Lovells. But he's now moved into this role where he's global head of ESG 
for Dentons, which is the largest law firm in the world. And he's reporting directly to the CEO and having those conversations about this is part of our strategy. This is not something that you know we we can think about doing. This is a must do. And uh, he gave some very practical ideas on how they've been sort of engaging with different parts of the organization um, to, and also you know, talking to external experts and partners, like you said, to, to get things moving on that. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's, one, there's one other topic I want to fit in before, before we talk about books. Uh, Tova, you had mentioned about the wind turbine wall. Yes. And this is very closely related to the discussion I had about Earthship uh, just this week with a, a woman who has Japan and Asia's first Earthship, which is a building design reusing waste materials Fantastic. like like yeah. tires. And I, I did some deep dive into tire and problems and plastic pollution and how tires are linked to a lot of the microplastic problems we're having. There's no way to reuse or recycle tires. Most of it is landfilled or burned. So they're using tires, uh, filling it with dirt and putting that around the house they're building as a really amazing insulation. And then your idea of making the walls into functional energy creating uh, ideas as well in the design there's so much we can do with new building design yep. and That's even true. some of these ideas i think we can add to existing buildings too right yeah well i like i said i'm in tokyo today i'm in a hotel um i came here for business yesterday and i'm looking out across the city um, as far as you can see there are buildings almost all flat roofed and no greenery anywhere no I can't see any solar panels. I can't see anything like that. And you think, what a wasted opportunity. We can be building these things into the design or even existing buildings here. We could, you know, we've got all this flat roof space. That That's a huge square footage of, you know, available space for renewable energy sources, for growing plants, which will help lower the, the heat island effect, you know, within the city and bring temperatures down and, and you know, allow... Uh, as well as having your own food source, right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I, I talked with uh, farmers, Chuck and yes. John, last week too, right? Yeah. And John gets hotels and stuff started with growing their own food yeah. on their roof, which they have in their restaurant, which is better for branding, right? Like yeah. there's so many plus, plus, plus benefits. Looking at any empty roof, you're like, motai nai. Oh, Why aren't you catching rainwater? Why aren't yeah. you using solar panels? Why isn't there at least a garden and green roof up there? Like, really, let's use what we already have. Make it yeah, better. Absolutely. Lots of any any comments, Shirley? We're we're just going on. <laughs> no, I'm really happy to hear. And yeah, there's so many like new ideas. And I think corporates too should, you know, somehow be able to tap into this. And yeah. I know that um um, yeah, I don't want to plug in my company, but I know that Rockton has an Earth Mall. So they, yes. I, I think Tova also supports that. I saw a mm. post about that. So even like starting small or like if you have an e-commerce business, have a small like section where you sell sustainable products from local businesses, you know, yeah. things like that can also be a small step towards like 
a big change. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. there's a big hotel chain in America, which on their roof, they have gardens, but they also have beehives. So yeah. one of their products in the hotel is their locally grown honey, yeah. as well as locally grown organic vegetables. So there's such a great branding opportunity. You're yeah. reducing your energy costs. There's just so many wins uh, connected with those ideas, right? Absolutely. I think we could do a whole session on this. Maybe maybe an upcoming session we can look at. Definitely. All right. Time for books, Tova. You had a great book to recommend. So the book I've uh, got this week is Net Positive. This is by Paul Polman and Andrew Winston. Um, Paul Polman, of course, is the former Unilever CEO um, and a huge advocate, longtime advocate of sustainability uh, on the corporate side. Um, he's also one of the, the founding counselors of One Young World. So uh, Shelley and I have seen him up on the stage. I mean, he's an amazing guy. Um, this book is looking at how companies need to be going, not just looking at the, the minimum um, and saying, you know, we're hearing lots about net zero. Great. Let's go beyond that. Net positive. If we want to thrive, we need to be going way beyond just doing what's necessary to survive. Um, thriving is hopefully a much more uh, appealing prospect than just surviving. Um, and the, the book is really, uh, it uses Unilever and Paul's experience and journey there um, as a, a case study, if you like. But it's not glorifying that at all. He, he's very open about, you know, this is what we tried to do. This is what we didn't do well. And here's what we learned from that. And here's how we're doing things differently because of those learnings. Um, but it really breaks down into uh, the thing I really love about it is he brings um, people up front and center into this. So, yes, he talks a lot with about the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, um, which has been very successful and, and is you know, now in the, the next iteration is continue to, you know, they're looking at how can they double their growth, but halve their um, footprint at the same time. So decoupling their growth from the um carbon footprint um so he talks a lot about the the structural changes and the systems you know things they had to change in order to achieve that but also how important it was to really bring people in the organization along for this journey and he talks about the fact they started with a sort of um purpose training starting at the top with the executives three day really deep dive they brought outside experts in and said how do we get our execs to really understand our purpose um, and bring that into their heart to motivate them and you know take it into the work they do and then they then then started to cascade that down throughout the organization i mean it's a massive organization with you know hundreds of over a hundred thousand employees but they're looking at rolling this out and i think they're now at sort of 80 90 percent globally for all their employees who have been through this. So they're really taking the time to make sure everyone in the organization understands why are we doing this? Why is it important for us? How are we helping solve global problems? And, and how does my role in whatever department I'm in at whatever level I'm at, how does it contribute and connect to that? So uh, it's a really fascinating read. I think any business leader should be reading this book. It's brilliant. 
so important uh, to have that education, training, and open discussions within yeah. your organization, as well as your message out to the public yeah, with disclosures and transparency and accountability, right? Well, yeah. that is our 30 minutes. We have gone over by one minute, but I think we got a lot of great stuff in there. Um, I've put as many links below as I, I could remember as we were going, but I'll add more uh, as I review. Thank you so much once again, Tova and Shirley. Another great discussion. And uh, see everybody next week. Have a nice holiday in Japan. Yes. All right. See bye. You. Thank you. Drop the armor, now I'm bolder.